We're continuing on in our study of the book of Mark, and we're getting near the end of chapter 2. Now, I'm not trying to blast through it, but I'm trying to take them section by section. Uh, sometimes they get broken up, sometimes they don't. But we're uh, in Mark chapter 2, and we'll be beginning in verse 18 here. But before we begin, let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever patched an old garment, an old piece of clothing? Since we have several farmers here, have you patched jeans or overalls? Did that patch work? Or did the patch pull away? And another question, have you ever mixed Diet Coke and Mentos candy? Some of you are chuckling. <laughs> If you, if you have, you've seen what happens when those are mixed. If you haven't, there's a, a reaction between the Mentos and the Diet Coke creating a foam eruption. Um, it's a fun way to do volcano science projects. Have you ever tried to do it in mixing them in a balloon? I haven't, and I couldn't actually find a video of that. Like to kind of see how far it would go before it pops, and that kind of brings us into our our passage here. In this passage, Jesus gives two short parables that are similar to these questions I was asking. But let's. But Jesus was using these parables as he always does to get a point across. So let's look at our passage and see what's going on. Starting in verse eighteen of Mark chapter two, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So here in verse 18, we have the question of fasting. We have the question of fasting. Now, this uh, section uh, is, comes in Mark right on the heels of the meal at, the Levi, at Levi's house, the house of the tax collector. And that, in that exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes of why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. So this comes right on the heels of that. And most kind of think this is following in that. But here we have an interesting uh, idea. We have the disciples of John are also mentioned here. Now these were followers of the teaching of John the baptizer. So we have here a distinct group of John's disciples presented here. One that seems to have remained intact, even though uh, John is now imprisoned by Herod Antipas. And that was referenced already back in chapter 1. So John's in prison, but this group is still around. But we don't, we don't really know why, what's going on, of why they've remained together and just linked to John's teaching when John was very clear about who Jesus was, behold the Lamb of God. So it might be that this understanding of disciple for John's here may be a little bit looser meaning. They were just followers. They had come. They have kind of following his teaching, but they didn't get too involved in it. It also could be um, that they were following, but they kind of remained in Galilee. Remember, John's taught a, John taught a baptism of repentance that showed a renewed spiritual commitment. 
So these may have just been, in, in one, word or, one way or another, normal Jews who had heard John, were baptized, and are trying to now live a renewed godly lifestyle and are picking up habits. They may have returned home. This could be a more distinct group that is just more tightly concerned with John and his ministry. We don't know too much for sure, but we do know that they are specifically mentioned here. We also see that the, the Pharisees are mentioned. Now, I should have done this a little bit over the last couple of weeks, and, and I didn't, so um, forgive me as we kind of go through this. We need to kind of understand a little bit more about the Pharisees. Now, some of us growing up in the church, we have a little bit of an idea of that, but let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Pharisees were a main sect of Judaism in the first century. The name comes from an Aramaic word that means separate or separatist. They were trying to be separate or separatist from anything that would contaminate them, that would defile them, keeping Jerusalem, keeping Israel holy and loyal. This sect is understood to be strict interpreters of the Mosaic law and the advocate of many of the legalistic traditions and rituals of Judaism. And because they were these separates, they avoided contact or interaction with Gentiles and tax collectors. That's why it was such a shocking idea to these scribes and Pharisees to find Jesus, this new rabbi, having a meal with tax collectors and sinners when their own understanding is he's now defiled, he's now unclean. He can't be a self-respecting rabbi. He's interacting with these people. They considered themselves to be the holiest within Israel, even considering the common Jew with disdain and condescension. But that holiness was, generally speaking, entirely, I'll get my tongue working at some point, entirely external and superficial. It was achieved only through the strict adherence of the rules and the regulations that had been added to the law of Moses. This sect likely developed after the resettlement of Israel, after the return to the land after the Babylonian captivity. And it had, grew, it had grown during that time and grew to dominance during the time of Jesus. They had more interaction control over the common people of Israel. Another group that we don't really see here for a while are known as the Sadducees. You've grown up in the church, you've heard about them. They were more the aristocrats and the priests. They didn't necessarily deal too much with the, with the people and didn't deal with the day-to-day things. The Pharisees kind of took that. So they had more daily interactions, and that's why they were always there around trying to catch Jesus and see him because they're seeing him interact. The Sadducees were, were typically in Jerusalem dealing with the temple and dealing with the upper crust. Now, while I say the Pharisees were strict uh, 
strictly adhered to the Mosaic law, they did hold to most of what we understand as the Old Testament. The prophets and the writings, the Psalms, the Sadducees were the five books of Moses. And just the five books of Moses. But these Pharisees, because they had such this interaction and this control and this mindset, they were devoted, and I think rightfully so, devoted to keeping the people loyal to the Old Testament law, and, but they've added this complex traditional regulations. But keeping the, the, the people loyal to the law was then keeping them loyal to God. And while my understanding, I think, of this is true, is that once they returned from, from exile, they never fell into idolatry again. They just fell into legalism. And you could almost call that a form of idolatry because they held the law in such a, a point that if it wasn't from their teaching, it wasn't right. And their interpretation was the only way to do it. But within this sect, there were scribes, and sometimes they refer to, were, are referred to as lawyers. These were the professional theologians, the scholars. These were the academics. John MacArthur makes this comment about them. He says, they traced, the Pharisees traced their history back to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the Israelites returned to their homeland after the Babylonian captivity. An ancient Jewish tradition asserted that God gave the law to angels, who gave it to Moses and to Joshua, who gave it to the elders, who gave it to the prophets, who gave it to the scribes in order to lead and teach in the synagogues. The scribes were responsible both to copy and preserve the scriptures as well as to interpret them in order to instruct the people. And because there were no more Old Testament prophets after Malachi, the scribes fulfilled the foundational teaching role in Israel. So there, they were the ones you went to. If you've seen, um, if you've seen Phil on the Roof, at the beginning, it's, Rabbi, what does the law say about this? Rabbi, what does the law say about this? That's kind of the idea I want you to understand. They, they couldn't interpret it. They had to go to the rabbi. And it wasn't so much you had to go to him, but they were the ones dedicated to doing it. So they had the answers. They were the ones seen as having the answers. And they, they had that foundational teaching role in Israel. Now, the Pharisees are a bit more complex than what we've really stated here, but you have a general idea of who they are as we continue through the book of Mark, and we will encounter them again and again and again. So we have, we understand a couple of our players here, but now we have this, this issue of fasting. Now, we all have a basic understanding of fasting, of, of not eating or sometimes not eating or drinking for a certain amount of time. Well, the Pharisees at least had, several, had a couple and that they were saying was, you need to do it so often to be godly. When in fact, there is only one fast given as mandatory 
in the law according to the scriptures. And that was on the great day of atonement. And we find that information in Leviticus 16, verses 29 to 31. And in fact, in that passage, the word that we typically see for fasting isn't even used. The word that's there says to humble your soul, to afflict your soul before the Lord. And that's what fasting was. The day of atonement was about mourning over sin. So to abstain from eating was appropriate. Fasting is about grieving and sorrow and mourning. The people were to abstain from work on the Day of Atonement. So it was holy as a Sabbath day. Now, as you go through the Old Testament, there are several other fasts mentioned that we see there. But these were voluntary in nature or that they were um, decreed by a ruler. But there is only one that was given as mandatory by God on the Day of Atonement once a year. But these other fasts that we see throughout the Old Testament are associated with grief, sorrow over sin, or someone genuinely seeking communion with God. Now, there are other fasts mentioned in Zechariah. There are four given in Zechariah, chapter 7 and in chapter 8. And these appear to have been established as memorials for mourning over the defeat of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple. And they give them, there's one on this month, one on this month, and it was correlated with different things. One when the siege began, one when Jerusalem was captured, one when so-and-so died, one when the temple was burned. But actually, God, through Zechariah, is calling, kind of calling the people out through these. I mean, why are you doing these? So it seems that following the captivity, fast became more frequent until they became a recognized, ordinary religious exercise. And they were customarily, though they were customarily not observed on the weekly Sabbath or on a festival day, or on the day before Sabbath or festival day. Because these were joyous times. These were not times of mourning or grief. Now, the parallel passage that we have here in Luke 5 mentions prayers. It says the disciples of John were fasting with supplications. So it's possible that John's disciples were likely mentioned here because they were not only fat, they were fasting, possibly not as just some religious exercise, but fasting and praying over John's imprisonment, whether that's, Lord, get him out. Lord, what's going on? He's in prison. Or Lord, what do we do next? John's in prison. Now, typically Jewish fast went for one day, evening, to evening. And the Pharisees seem to have established two fasts every week on the second and fifth day of the week. So roughly every Monday and Thursday on our week. And this scene that we have here may have fallen on one of these days. So John's disciples here, as I said before, may have just been ordinary Jews that were seeking to live a more godly life now that they've 
repented and been baptized by John for this repentance, for this new commitment of spiritual godly life, and have taken up this Pharisaic ritual of trying to do something because the Pharisees are the ones who are seen as godly because of the things that they do. Like I said, this scene that we have here may have been on one of these two days, second or fifth day of the week. And it may have been a continuation with that exchange at Levi's home when Jesus was seen eating with those tax collectors and sinners. If that meal happened on a Monday or a Thursday and the Pharisees and John's disciples are wandering around, they're going, wait, we're fasting. You're, first of all, you're eating with tax collectors and sinners, but it's a fast day. Why aren't you fasting? So they raise the question. Now, we don't know exactly, I want to say we don't know exactly who asked this question because each of the synoptic gospels presents this question. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all present this question in this passage. Matthew records only the disciples of John. Luke says they, and if we link this with that exchange at Levi's home, they goes back to the Pharisees and the scribes. But Mark includes both, but doesn't indicate who. (laughs) And one writer thinks that since Mark may have been written to a more Gentile uh, audience, he may have included both for their understanding of things. But either way, it seems that each group seems to be concerned with this difference that they're seeing between the Pharisees, John's disciples, and Jesus and his disciples. Now, as only Matthew includes the disciples of John, the Pharisees may have used this perplexing questioning to maybe push or encourage the disciples of John to ask this question. Because it's really odd for the disciples of John, if these are are more diehard disciples of John, why are they in league with the Pharisees? Because they're not, John certainly wasn't in league with the Pharisees. He called them a brood of vipers. So if we take the idea that maybe it was more John's disciples actually asking the question, um, Jesus' answer may seem to be more directed towards them. But he still responds to the question. So let's look at his response, picking up in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So in verses 19 and 20, we have the wedding answer. The wedding answer. John, or Jesus answers the question with a counter question. Now, since fasts were elements of mourning, in times of grief or sorrowful reflection, this was something that was inappropriate for a wedding, especially the joyousness of a wedding. And Jewish weddings then, as we would say our weddings are today, are supposed to be happy and joyful events. 
And he calls this group of people the friends of the bridegroom. Now, this literally translates as sons or children of the bride chamber. This is an idiom in, in Jewish, uh, in, in the Hebrew language, referring to the attendance of the groom. Other versions read wedding guest. And while that's true, I don't think it catches the full meaning of the, of the term. The New American Standard reads attendance of the bridegroom, and I think that's a better way of understanding it. To put it in today's terms, though it's kind of a loose-fitting analogy, think of them as the groomsmen of today's wedding party. Now, although unlike today's groomsmen, where their responsibility is to show up to the wedding on time and make sure the groom is there, these attendants were the closest friends of the groom. And they went with him to get the bride and her attendants from her home to, and be a part of the procession to bring her to the groom's home for the wedding. They were responsible for a lot of the wedding plans. Ladies, how many of you wanted your groomsmen planning your wedding? I think my groomsmen showed up for the wedding. <laughs> Now, in that day, wedding celebrations would last at least seven days. Some would even go up to 14 days. These celebrations wouldn't begin until the bridegroom and his attendants arrived. And the bridegroom, the attendants of the bridegroom are said to share in the joy of the bridegroom, of the groom. Jewish tradition, culture, even forbade fasting at a wedding. It would have been inappropriate. It would have been an insult to be fasting at someone's wedding, especially as an attendant of the groom. So Jesus is showing with this metaphor, he's showing a, how ludicrous it would be for the groomsmen to be fasting at the wedding it's just as ludicrous as the idea that the disciples of the Messiah would be fasting while the Messiah is with them. He's using this to illustrate the, a point about truth about himself. While fasting in anticipation of the Messiah would be appropriate, it certainly wasn't appropriate after his arrival. But he gives an interesting remark. He says, but when in the days when the bridegroom is taken away. Jesus has intimated in this passage that he is the bridegroom in this analogy. And in continuing that thought, he now hints here to a time when he will be taken away. This is the first intimation in the book of Mark of the cross looming in the future. Jesus says that when he is no longer with his disciples, that would be the appropriate time for them to fast because it would be appropriate way to express the true feelings. And that's something he's trying to get across. At the wedding is not the time. You don't express true feelings of sorrow and remorse while you're at a wedding. You're 
expressions and your feelings should be joyous because it's a joyous event. The bridegroom is there. The Messiah is there. But after he is gone and it's a time of mourning and sorrow, Lord, what do we do now? That's a time of fasting. Now, Jesus wasn't opposed to fasting. In Matthew 6, 16 to 18, he gives instruction on fasting, not as a public display of self-aggrandizing religiosity, but as a private act before God. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. He's telling them, if you're going to fast, fast. But don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Pharisees who put makeup on to, ex to, to draw to attention that, oh, I've been fasting. No, wash your hair, wash your face, go about your business like it's any other day. The only people who need to know you're fasting are you and the Father, and the Father will take care of you. But Jesus wasn't done with his response here. And he continues in the next verses, picking up in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and it tears and is made worse. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskin, or else the new wine bursts the wineskin and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. So in verses 21 and 22, we have parables for clarity. Parables for clarity. Jesus now gives two simple parables to further his explanation and to provide some clarity. Everything cleared up for you after reading those? <laughs> no? Okay. But this is the first example we have in Mark of Jesus giving parables. Now, a lot of the parables that we know of Jesus come with a lot of around his longer teaching passages, which Mark does not include. So there's not many parables in Mark. Most of them are found in Matthew and Luke, and there's some in John as well. Uh, but this is um, the first ones that we see in Mark. Now, parables are presented in different ways in the scriptures. They're presented as proverbs. They're presented in story form as similes, metaphors, or a similitude. But a parable is used to convey an unknown truth through a common or known element. Taking something everyone understands and using that understanding of, I'm talking about this, that you may not understand yet. And Jesus' most common parables are stories. Luke 15, verse 11, and a certain man had two sons. And you know the rest of the story of the prodigal son. And most of the parables that we know of Jesus are these story ones. 
There are others. A lot of them are similar to, it's the kingdom of heaven is like. Others are a metaphor, I am the gate of the sheep. But let's take a look at the parables that we have here in our passage. First, he's, he's talking about patching an old garment. Now, we see the common idea of patching garments. This garment that we're talking about is old, pretty worn, and has a rip or a hole in it. Kind of like most of my son's pants around the knee. But this hole in this garment needs to be patched if the garment is going to be kept in use, right? You don't want to toss out those pair of overalls just because there's a hole in it. You can put a patch on it. It's still good. So to patch this garment, a piece of cloth needs to be sewn onto it. But Jesus makes a commonly understood statement. You don't use new cloth on an old garment. Well, why? Because the new cloth is new. It hasn't been washed. It hasn't been dressed. It hasn't shrunk yet. To put a new cloth in an old garment as a patch will only cause greater harm to the garment because that patch will shrink in the first wash and pull at the garment and create a larger tear, ruining the garment. Now, most people wouldn't even probably would use an old garment that they would use to cut up and make patches with. They wouldn't use a new garment because you would ruin the new and if you wound up ruining the old as well. Now, today, most patches that you're going to buy at the store are pre-shrunk, right? So you don't necessarily have to worry about these too, that too much. But this was something that was very common in the culture. You needed to make sure you had old garment, a shrunk, pre-shrunk garment to patch an old, older garment. So this wouldn't happen. You wouldn't tear the garment again. But he's not done. He continues with wineskins. He says you wouldn't put new wine in old wineskins. Well, why wouldn't you do this? Jesus says this would cause the skins to burst. Now, we need to understand something. Wineskins were made from the skins of sheep or goats. Newer wineskins would have much more elasticity in them than the older ones. Well, why is that important? Well, because as new wine sits, it ferments. And as it's fermenting, gases are created. The new wineskin has the proper elasticity to deal with the expansion of these gases through the fermentation process. An old wineskin is inflexible and has lost much of its elasticity and would burst from the gases of the fermentation of the wine, which would be catastrophic in two ways. You would lose the wine and the old wineskin because older wineskins weren't cast aside when they were no longer of use. They just couldn't take the fermentation process. You could be used as a water flask or a water bottle and it was still used. But what is Jesus' meaning? What is the point of these parables? Jesus is showing the incompatibility of being a follower of Christ and the accepted legalism of the Pharisees. Jesus didn't come to reform Judaism or the form of Judaism that the Pharisees taught. 
He wasn't coming to reform them. He was calling them to repentance because he was offering the kingdom. Jesus brought a new doctrine to the nation, not one, not one built on works righteousness. Because it does, as, as Jesus was teaching there, as we teach now, it doesn't matter how often you fast, how much you give to charities, how often you attend church or read your Bible. The only thing that matters is accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. Once you do that, being at church is good for you. Reading your Bible is good for you. But the most important thing is accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. So being a disciple of Christ is a thing all to itself. Christianity and discipleship can't be patched onto an older system or other religion. You can't make Christianity fit inside other religions. True Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. When I was at college, um, at the end of the hall in the dorm, there was a chalkboard one year at the end there. I don't know why I was there. And the, the guy that lived in the room right next to there would write a verse or a phrase occasionally on there. One time he wrote this and it struck me and, I, and it stuck with me. He wrote, the gospel does not amount to the ABCs of the Christian life, but rather the A to Z. It's not about just going down the list. The gospel covers everything in the Christian life. We do the things, like I said, the Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. We do things or we don't do things because of how we are following Christ. Scripture guides us. We make choices whether we, of whether what we are doing is honoring to God or not, is sinful or not. Scripture and the Holy Spirit are our guides for those choices. Lists and rules can't save you, even under the guise of Christendom. Only Christ saves you by grace through faith. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do in your life. All that matters is that when it's your time to stand before the Lord and he says, why should I allow you into heaven? If your answer is not, I have accepted Christ and I stand in him, in Christ alone. He's not letting you into heaven. Let's be aware of the, the legalism of the Pharisees. And like I said last week, there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of our blood, so let's be careful. <laughs> let's bow for a word of prayer as we close this morning. Father, we thank you for the reminder we have in these, in these verses and the truths that we see there. We thank you for the truths that we know that Christ has come And he has paid the price of our sins and that we are able now to stand before you complete in Christ alone and able to come, come before you 
in his righteousness. Doesn't matter how often we fast, if we fast, how often we give, or other good works that we do. That is only through your grace and our faith in Christ. So Father, I pray for those that may that are here. I pray for the those that are Christians that are here that they would continue to seek to be good at disciples of Christ and not disciples of Pharisees. I pray that we not try and fit traditions and legalistic rules and call it Christianity. It's not compatible with Christ. That patch will tear away. I pray for those that might be here that have not accepted Christ yet. Lord, I pray that your spirit will be at work in them, that they would be drawn to friends and relations that know you, that are able to discuss these things and be able to live out their faith properly so that they may know you. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.